Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. It is now literally the most important thing for me to understand so that I can now recalibrate how am I going to live my life and what are my dreams? Because yep. your belief system in, influenced what your dream life is and your dream life is what stabilizes you. And if your belief systems start to crumble, you might have to change your dreams. And I think if we can relax into the idea that there's not a right and wrong, there's not a truth and a non-truth, there's a, a blending of all of it. We all have an idea of what the present moment is. We all have an idea of the type of future we would like to try to make this present moment into. And we have a set of behaviors that we believe will help us do that. And that your nervous system has evolved to require this map to experience most positive emotions and that you've evolved the negative emotions to essentially teach you when the behaviors to transform the now into the future aren't working. When you act certain and the truth is you don't know, you're lying. But this is the first time where if we even want a more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. We have to fundamentally change the way that we disagree, to change the way that we defend what we believe. We have to learn how to unlearn, sitting with the humility that we know almost nothing. And the more we are certain, it is very likely a reflection of how afraid we are of that thing being wrong. Not surprisingly, we just spent about, I don't know, 30 minutes breaking it down for my, or I should say you broke it down, broke a lot down for my 15-year-old son who's super curious. Yeah, and, and I, I loved just, it. Just love the way he, uh, I love the way he can hang with, um, with us. Yeah. And he's, he pays such close attention and what you shared with him, like that really landed for him. I could tell the way he was receiving it. Yeah, that's why I got so amped up is I could feel that he was listening. He's fascinated. Um, he's fascinated by a lot of things. And I think that's maybe what, what I've tapped into recently is what is alive in each of these kids and, and what can I do to facilitate that. And he comes in, comes home from school. We're about to start the podcast and loves meeting my friends. He just immediately sat down, obviously made himself a, a bag with some teas, herbs, and tobacco and uh, just listened, yeah. asked questions, but listened. Wasn't trying to uh, defend his point. Now he may do that. We all do that outside of yeah. this space, but he saw it was a real learning opportunity. And so I, I offered that as how I see this, this conversation today, a real learning opportunity, certainly for me yeah, uh, and everybody listening. And as I told you before, you know, when you got out of the car, there's not one podcast I've done where I haven't done some bit of prep research 
And the only mm-hmm. kind of prep I did here was to make sure the mics were working and the cameras are on. Yeah. Because with you, there's no need for that. We're just going to have a dope conversation and wherever we end up is going to be where we end up and it's going to be beautiful. So thank you for being here, Eric Godsey. Brother, thank you for inviting me again. And I told you the other day when I saw you this past weekend, but to witness the growth and the coming into oneself that I've seen in you since the first time we did a podcast, it is incredible and inspiring and heart opening. And, you know, one of my favorite things to feel is to witness the authentic growth of someone that I'm close to or that I care about. And I just want to say thank you for doing whatever all the things that you have been doing over the last year and a half, because just witnessing it like uh, feeds a part of me. Oh, I received that. That means means a lot coming from you. I know that you, uh, you don't share those words lightly. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. And I want to know just for, for kicks, like what's alive for you right now? Yeah. So uh, to give the audience some background, Cal and I are a part of a men's group and we meet once a month and these are high functioning, uh, particularly successful, you know, alpha quote unquote males. And um, I had the opportunity to essentially share with the group what has been um, my great unlearning for the last five or six weeks and any good unlearning is going to create an existential crisis in you. And we'll get into all that on this podcast, (laughs) but I was able to share and then I was able to be received by men, many whom have a father energy towards me. And because of my wounds with my specific biological father, uh, I have not created a space in my life to allow men to hold space for me. And it ended with us. um, It ended with me weeping and being hugged by 17 men. And what's alive for me is both the existential crisis that led up to that moment, but also the peace that I now feel in my nervous system in just the last two days, even though there's no new clarity about my existential situation, but that, you know, a part of it was simply uh, allowing my nervous system to relax in the presence of powerful men. And this is an interesting um, tendril into the heart of what it is that uh, I'm excited to talk about with you. But one of the fundamental psychological forces behind um, how people feel about quote unquote, the system or the culture or the government, whatever air quote you want to use to represent that entity is deeply interwoven with their relationship to men in authority. And that one of the things that you can feel into is if you love conspiracy theories, 
what was your relationship like with your father and with the coaches that, you know, if you were an athlete or the male teachers, um, did you feel betrayed? Did you feel like you were taken advantage of? And this is not to say that the way that you are looking at the world is uh, inherently, you know, because of trauma or anything like that. But one of the things that I know about me based off of my decade of psychological study and self-examination is um, (laughs) how I felt about all the people closest to me when I was a child reverberates through every part of how I cognitively connect to anything in the world when I'm not conscious. And I'll kind of leave a pause there for you to offer anything up. And then I'll try to tell the story because to create the context for what I'm talking about. Perfect. Cause I was hoping there was a pause be- a bunch came up for me. First of all, I love the recognition and awareness that any great unlearning journey on the other side of that or on that journey is a literal existential crisis. I felt that, you know, when I had my experience in Las Vegas. And if you can sit with that fucking major discomfort and yeah some of that has to be done on your own there's some solitude in that but if you can look around to the people that can support you and i know for me when that happened i met kyle kingsbury two days later not by coincidence and he held me and what he was sharing with me held me and the people he introduced me to held me through that and on the other side of that is a great awakening yeah and in, 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 in you just change, completely change your trajectory of who you are and what's possible. And it opens up that aperture to something that you never thought yep. possible. So I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you for, for that. And I want to go a little deeper into this idea. Um, if you're, let's just say, if you're into conspiracy theories, I never was. I would say that I am now. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to, I'd love to kind of explore that just within me, uh, with, with men in authority. I felt, uh, I didn't have a voice. Mm. Uh, certainly my dad's was, was very loud and very right. And, uh, at times confrontational, uh, and oppressive at times. And so I, I didn't feel like I had a place to speak. Yeah. Is that? Is that consistent with what you're talking about? Right. Um, I'll answer that directly and kind of concisely. And then I'd love to give the kind of the story. And then maybe we can circle back to this question at the end with way more nuance and beauty and context. But so for me, my relationship with my dad emotionally was essentially um, not present, not malicious dumb. And even though that's not actually true, that's how I felt as a child. And so my relationship to how I've identified with culture or the system is essentially not malicious, but also stupid and not stupid as in like, um, you're a dummy, stupid as in 
so ineffective as to actually be harmful, but not malicious. And so that's colored the way that I am biased in receiving everything. But I want to get into essentially what has led me to this existential crisis moment. And then, you know, I think that I can poignantly come back to this question about conspiracy and our bias based of our relationship to authority figures, specifically men when we were younger. If, if I may, yeah. I just want to acknowledge you talk about the nervous system. Mine right now <laughs> is, oh, brother, the, 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 just being in your presence has just totally like grounded me. It feels this, yeah, I just, I felt the need to share that. So thank you for, for, for your beautiful energy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, just, I couldn't keep that one in. So thank you. Yeah, I receive that and it's feedback that I get often. And I think a big part of it is, um, you know, the healing I've brought to my nervous system through the work that I've done. But also it's because fundamentally um, there's, there's a primary compassion in my nervous system for like the tragedy of the human experience that it feels like uh, at like an unconscious level, what my organism just wants to do to other organisms. It's like, I know, I know. Um, but thank you and received. So the, I'm going to try to tell this story in a, as cohesive of a way as I can, because I'm still, like it's, I'm, I'm still to the point of being destabilized enough to not even have a coherent story yet. And that's a part of being in the existential unlearning moment. But so for the last 10 years, my goal with my life, my dream has been to essentially create a new type of psychotherapy that is the most effective. And then I win a Nobel prize. Like that's been kind of the ego but also of service goal and built into that dream for my life was I imagined my dream home. It would be next to a lake and my family would be there. And the tone of the vision was I could be a family man first and then I could do my work on the side. And one of the implications was the world would be stable enough the way it is now that I could have that slice of the human experience and, um, you know, get what my inner boy wants, which is the chance to be the type of father that he didn't get to be. And I've used that goal, that dream as my driving, motivating force to be very disciplined, to work hard, to be compassionate, to forgive, to love, to learn. And, um, that's broken down because of what I've learned in the last about six weeks that has caused this existential moment for me. And so most of my professional life has been to learn psychology, to really understand human nature and to figure out how can you help humans heal. And and an analogy is that I've spent the last 10 years really learning like 
the specific pieces on the chessboard? Like, what is this piece capable of doing? In the back of my mind, for the last maybe eight years, I've always had this kind of like curiosity as to why my soul hasn't ever called me to try to learn what is the game board right now? Like I've, I have felt kind of like in my um, academic and learning process that I've been in the past, that I've been reading the books of the great dead. I've been kind of learning, but it's, it's always kind of felt disconnected from the present moment. Mm. And once COVID started, um, it's like I was being forced uh, to start to look at like, what is the chessboard right now for the first time? And is that because it became more revealed to you that there was a different game being played or? It was because everyone in my life was trying to tell me their theory of what the board was um, because the role in all of my tribe groups is like, you know, uh, whether or not it's true, they see me as like one of the clear thinkers, one of the smart people, one of the people that if I run my idea by Eric and he doesn't like disagree with me, like I feel better about my idea and I feel uncomfortable even saying that because there feels like there's ego. I'll, con- it, I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll confirm that. No, right. I think, it, and it's, it's, you're, uh, yeah, very grounded and you've done your work and you've had your experiences. So it it's all comes together. Um, not just because you've read the books. Right. Thank you. But, but you've 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 applied. So yeah. And I received that. And for the last year, you know, everyone that I'm close to who has an opinion about what the game board is, they've been bringing me their hypothesis essentially. That's never offered as a hypothesis. It's always like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Yes. Yes. Good, and, good clarification. And every single theory of what's going on in the current chessboard, none of it has resonated with me. There are pieces of all of them that make sense, but the way that I describe it is every version that I've ever been given on the classic left or right side, as out there as fifth dimensional resetting, as you know, old as like Jesus coming back, et cetera. Everyone and every story that I've been given, there's this thing in me that based off of my understanding of human nature and how we are biased and how we've evolved to think in certain ways that are actually not clear thinking, um, every story that I've been given, there is this part that's like, that sounds like what a dramatic 18 year old who wrote a graphic novel would like that the conclusions and a lot of the connecting tissue of what might be some truths felt like it was imbued with, you know, our very human like confirmation bias. Um, And I've been, doing my best to receive these and really try to pick out the gold, but I still didn't feel called from my inner like soul to go do the deep research. Um, Cause one of the things that I know about myself and it's why I've had such resistance when any of my friends bring forth a theory of what they think the current game board is, is that 
if I believed the conclusions that your theory is putting forth, I would radically change my life. So there's a, a heavy weight when someone is bringing forth um, their theory of what they think is happening in the world. And one of the things that would um, irritate me is that I could feel every person except for a few, probably 95% of anyone bringing forth with conviction what they thought was happening in the world. If I didn't listen to the words they said and just looked to how they acted day to day, they didn't believe it. But they were telling me like they believed it because if they believed what they were telling me, that they believed. They would not live their life the way that they live it. They would not have just watched a movie with me. They would not spend their days being on Instagram. Like if they actually believed what they're telling me they believe, they would live radically differently. And so there's this part of me that whenever I get a theory about what the chessboard is from someone who's convinced to the degree that if I believed it, I know it would change the way that I live my life there's this part of me that I don't really ever voice. That's like, you're full of shit. Like you actually don't believe this because if you did, you would not be living your life the way that you live it. And it was about six weeks ago that I, um, I heard Jamie wheel on Aubrey Marcus's podcast. And, um, I was really vibing with like the way that he was, um, kind of hinting at like, what is the situation that we're in? And then I went and I checked out a podcast um, between him, this man named Daniel Schmachtenberger, and then this man named Jordan Hall. And they began to talk about this thing called game A, game B is the words that they used for it. And I started having this almost like religious moment. So one of my favorite feelings is when I find a new model of reality that feels like it fits into what my dream is, which is to create a new type of psychotherapy that is the most effective. And whenever I catch a hint of a new model that feels like it will add to my pursuit, I become obsessive. I will spend two to six hours a day reading and integrating Normally what I do is the moment I catch a hint of a new model, I'll go research who was the creator of it and what was their magnum opus. And then I buy their magnum opus and then I don't do anything else but read it until it feels like I've integrated it. This was the first time that I ever felt that call, but there aren't any books written on this idea. And it's because there's essentially a group of philosophers who are trying to figure out how did we get into the situation that we're in right now as a collective humanity and um, how could we potentially change it? And the reason they want to try to change it is it basically comes down to this and I'll do a lot to elaborate on this, but uh, when you take the way humans have evolved to compete with other humans for finite resources because of the process of evolution, and then you add in exponential technology like a nuclear weapon. Those two dynamics equal self-extinction eventually. Because if, like fundamentally, if I'm an ape and you're an ape and we're competing for finite resources in this environment and there's one piece of food, we'll fight. And we 
are programmed to do that. But if you insert having the ability to use, to use nuclear weapons, uh, that is something that our genes never um, calibrated for in how we were evolved. And the more that I heard these people explain um, kind of the governing forces that are currently, that have led to the chessboard being what it is, I could feel that it was resonating with everything that I've ever learned. Like they were basically saying, okay, ground one is evolutionary biology. What are the physics and the chemistry and the biology that have led to the process of evolution to create the type of organism that we are? And then what are, what are the cultural systems that we've created based off of that evolutionary biology that have brought us to the current moment. And so the big things that they talk about are what's called game theory, which is essentially an attempt to mathematically express the way our genes have created us to compete with each other. Cause your genes don't give a fuck about anything other than getting as much of them into the next generation. Um, they have not evolved to give a fuck about humanity or the entire planet. And then uh, basically market forces and this is something that i know that you'll know a lot about but that we've essentially have been trying to figure out how do you create a economic system that works and that one of the things that makes it work is does it align with our biological nature you know like this is incredibly nuanced but one of the big reasons why communism did not fall in the way that the creators of it thought that it would was because it didn't align with human nature and it got hijacked in a specific way and expressed in a, in a specific way that led to hundreds of millions of people dying. How did they think it was going to fall? So, you know, the, they did not believe that if you enacted um, the principles in this book, that it would lead to genocide, like, right. That they thought that this would be a way to equal, to equally distribute, resources in a way that wouldn't create the very real um, fundamental and systematic inequality that capitalism was currently offering. And, you know, the nuances there could feel, could fill hundreds of hours of podcasts, but. And so our DNA, back, is it back to the DNA that is just looking for survival and, and with this idea of finite resources? Right. So, um, and it's, it's a very long, like it could, one of the reasons why this is so hard for me is that I've never had a model that was so complex that I couldn't integrate it into a story if I gave everything to it for a month. You know, um, I can feel that I'm still choking on how big this idea is. But to answer that question, um, we have essentially evolved to act in such a way that if we're not using our conscious, present, discerning qualities that are exemplified in the spirit of the scientific method, we will devolve or we will default to tribalism. We will default to trying to get more power. We will default to using deception to basically protect ourselves so, you know, one of the fundamental things is who is the person in the system that gets to choose how the 
what are the qualities of the type of people that are going to have the things taken from them in, in communism and who is the person or the function in the system that gets to choose how they're spread out Ooh. that the biological nature in us is that that person or that group would have to be more impeccable than oh. almost any human that we've ever created. Fuck. And so like one of the reasons why the quote unquote free market, and I'm getting beyond my depth and this is something that I want to articulate to people, but I'll focus on the psychology is that one of the reasons that it's worked better than any other model we've currently put forth. It doesn't mean that there's all sorts of shit wrong with it is that it, it allows for the evolutionary process that has guided our biological evolution to essentially play out in the space of ideas. And you know, like what that means is I bring an organism to the environment and the market is the environment and the company is the organism. The, environment will regulate whether or not my organism gets to continue and there's no person that's getting to choose like in its most simplified abstract essence there's on some level a collective intelligence that's beyond the individual whim of any one person and their own biases that regulates what gets to continue to live. Mm. Now there's all sorts of ways that that's been corrupted in the last 50, 100 years, but because it was closer to how we've evolved to be, it was able to be more successful. What's really tricky is that we are now in a situation where we can't make a system like that because because we have exponential technology, if we make a system that is in alignment with our unconscious biological drives, we will self-extinct. And there's a bunch of threads here, and I've been talking for a while, and I can feel that I'm not making super coherent sense. Um, I'm following all of it. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So, which is saying something. The main thing that I'm trying to convey is that. Um, it feels like I have found my theory. So I've had dozens and dozens of people bringing every possible theory for what it feels like the game board is. And I haven't resonated with any of them. And it feels like I have found my game board. And what's happening to me is exactly why I would get irritated with other people because I know my nature. Now that I have found this, it is now literally the most important thing for me to understand so that I can now recalibrate how am I going to live my life and what are my dreams? Because I can feel that the way that I lived my life and what my dreams were cannot fit into what I am learning and that I am actively dissolving my identity the more that I learn this and it's more and more destabilizing. But to kind of give the frame it feels like what I'm starting to see the chessboard is something like this. I am the traumatized son of a culture that is so out of alignment with how to be in harmony with its mother, which is the earth that to be adapted to the culture is to be sick, profoundly sick mm -hmm. because of the degree that the culture is out of alignment with nature. The culture, 
my father has developed to a point where it has the ability to end all life on the planet. Like it could literally happen today. And that be because I have been uniquely called to study human nature for over a decade, I am seeing the weight, the massive weight of the situation that we are in, where there's essentially a handful of super powerful suborganisms, countries that are competing with each other in a way where they're essentially competing to grow more against these other things, but that the overall direction of the organism is further and further out of alignment with nature. And so if you feel into, if there's a bunch of boys competing in a race and they're only focused on beating the other people, but the race is off of a ledge, everyone is competing and optimizing for the fundamental direction to self-annihilation. And whatever type of psychological system I'm going to create, it feels like it fundamentally has to address this. And it feels like in order for it to address it, I have to understand what it is. And that's what I'm in the process of doing. And I have to understand it well enough where I can tell the story about it, which as you, like, I'm still so far, like I can feel that there's 99% of the powerful shit that I've already learned that I'm not even able to articulate in these conversations. And so as I speak on it, there's this internal like calibrating system. That's like, you're not even close. They're not even, and it's, it's not shaming. It's, right. it's true. It's like a good coach. Okay. It's like, you're not even close. And so I'm, I'm in this really tension filled state for the last couple of weeks because I can feel that in order for me to reconnect back to my Dharma, my dream, the vision of my life that includes my family, um, I, I have to, digest this thing that's in front of me. And this thing that's in front of me is essentially to understand evolution deeply and intuitively enough to understand what is our default human behavior palette, to learn roughly the cultural history of how that evolved behavioral template has sought to try to create a stable civilization and then to become deeply aware of where is it at right now? How sick is it in relationship to being in harmony with nature? Because nature is, if, if we get that wrong, we die, period. And then I can get back to my dharma. Now, I, I understand that all of this is a part of me trying to understand my dharma, but one of the things that's deeply dysregulating is, 
And this is something that happened to me when I was younger, when I first started to get into psychology. And it's like, we have not evolved to be able to understand how we've evolved. And it feels like if a computer got self-aware enough where it could begin to actually learn how it got programmed, there's this, it, it feels like this error starts to happen in my nervous system when I start to become more and more aware of my subconscious processes. And when I first got into cognitive psychology when I was in my early 20s, like it almost led me to having a psychotic break where I was becoming aware of um, essentially how I am constantly analyzing how other people are expecting me to be so that I can impress or so I can deceive to get what I want. Um, how, how biased I am whenever I receive information that either disagrees or agrees with me, how shallow my competence is for things that have to meet hard reality, like building a fire or killing an animal or having to learn how to create a shelter that could withstand, you know, a storm. And also just feeling fundamentally how disconnected I am from both nature and from having authentic relationships with other people. But so where I'm at right now is I'm starting to feel into um, how much of my life is still lived in what they call game A. And game A is essentially um, separate entities competing for finite resources. Um, and that anyone who's contributing to that energy is a part of the thing that will very likely lead to self-extinction. And so they're trying to dream into how would we play game B? And the game A, game B thing actually comes from, you know, so game theory is something that I brought up earlier, but game theory is a perspective of human behavior where anytime a human is interacting with the other human in any way, it's a game and there are goals and there are implicit rules and there are ways that we enforce the rules and Game theory was such a powerful tool that when it was created, it essentially became the guiding philosophical force that led to uh, how our government responded to nuclear weapons being created. And some of the smartest mathematicians and physicists began working on the mathematics of game theory to essentially figure out how the fuck do we integrate the fact that we have nuclear weapons now and that other countries are actively reverse engineering how we got this and they're going to have it soon. And game theory and these mathematical equations and these thinkers actually were the driving force to the creation of a new civilization, which is the United Nations and this specific intent on creating a interdependent global economic system to increase the risk of using nuclear warheads because now we are all starting to have to depend on each other more. And then it led to um, what was a conscious strategy, which was mutually assured destruction 
where after having done the math and doing all the thinking and the debating, they essentially came to the conclusion, we have to create the maximum amount of nuclear warheads that we can in a way where Russia knows they will do the same and we have to create the situation as such that if they ever even thought about attacking us, we would instantly retaliate with everything that we have and they know that we're going to do it and the Russians know that we're going to do it. And I tell that story to explain that game theory has that much weight in the way that our history and our culture has unfolded and that it's actually based off of some of the most robust psychological studies that have to do with evolutionary biology. So it's a super sturdy, tested idea. And that um, game theory is a loose representation of the word that can encapsulate how our culture is functioning. And one of the invitations is, what does game B look like? Mm. How do you order a civilization that doesn't fundamentally run or rivalrous game theory dynamics? We've never been able to do it before. And we're in a situation right now where because of the spread of homo sapiens across the planet and how interdependent our cultures are and the amount of power that we have in weapons now and that because of technology the needed resources to create these massively disruptive weapons gets more and more decentralized like every 18 months um we are now in a situation where we are likely the first generation or couple of generations in history that has to actively reimagine a new type of civilization that could operate in such a way where we don't ruin the game of life for all living creatures on the planet. And I can feel that as I'm explaining this, I hear that voice and it's like, not even close, not even close. And to kind of like bring this down so you can start to ask questions because I feel like I've been um, at a bunch of different places is so I'm actively trying to feel into what is the spirit of this new type of way of relating. And the so the question that you asked at the beginning of the podcast that uh, your son and I were talking about for a while is this relationship between um, ourselves as an individual and what we think the system is or what culture is, this is one of our primary relationships. Like one of the things to feel into is you have a couple of primary relationships in your life. The first one is your relationship to yourself. There is a fundamental relationship to nature, whether or not you feel that you're connected to it. And most of us are traumatized to the degree of our disassociation from that primary relationship. There's your relationship to individual others. And so that could be friendships, romantic relationships, business relationships. And then there's a relationship to culture. And each of those relationships 
are skewed to the degree that you are traumatized to the degree that you are allowing your genes programs to tell you that you're a separate thing that has to compete with these things in order to feel safe. And that game B would require a fundamental different relating to each of these things. Like one of the things that I can feel into is no matter how much work I've done, no matter how much psychedelics I've done, no matter how much deep crying I've done with other people, my default, 95% of my day is I'm a separate entity, you're a separate entity, and as long as I can predict how you're behaving, I can interact with you in such a way where I can tell myself the story that I'm a woke dude. But if you, like, if you do something that destabilizes me, my absolute instinct is to see you as an enemy, is to see you as a thing that I'm competing with. And that the way that I relate to nature, I can say all day on every podcast how at one, you know, that we're all interconnected and blah, blah, blah. I'm terrified of that bee. You know, I fundamentally feel that nature is this thing outside of me that I have to drive somewhere and go on a walk and connect to. I can feel that I'm disassociated from nature. In relationships, this is something that's super deep because one of the things to feel into is any behavior that the closer a behavior is to improving whether or not your genes are able to reproduce is how deeply ingrained your human biases are to that behavior. And so like when it comes to relationships, jealousy, insecurity, manipulation, anything that you know how to possibly do to contain the chaos of the relationship, Mm -hmm. like you are compelled by it's such a deep thing to get into. And maybe this is where we go. Like all of these things I'm talking about, it feels like I'm trying to skim the highlights, but each of them are so deep and so nuanced and so interesting that like, I don't know how I'm ever going to put it all together, but (laughs) I feel that sense of overwhelm as you're talking about it. It's like, yeah, yeah, where's not that you need to get to the bottom of it, but just, just holding that, that, you know, and that's, I think the beauty of, of real inquiry is that yeah. I'll never get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Just get into that curiosity. Yeah. The thing that I want to just tell everyone listening is this is what someone looks like when they're earnestly in the existential lostness. And I'm just sharing, like I am, I can feel that I'm lost and I'm doing my absolute earnest best to be with the experience of lostness. But I'm sure that like anyone who's really feeling into how this must feel in me, like I'm lost. But the thread that I was about to go down that's really interesting is when you begin to do the uh, deep relaxing into what we understand about uh, evolution and specifically sexual selection. So there's natural selection And then there's sexual selection and they're slightly different, but that from the jump, males and females when are competing with each other to get their genes into the next generation. And we have evolved to exploit, to lie, to deceive, 
to get as much out of it as we can possibly get with giving the least amount to it as we can possibly get away with. And one of the things that's worth highlighting is there's this idea in evolutionary psychology called the naturalistic fallacy. And it's the belief that just because it evolved, that that it's good. And one of the big major brushstrokes of this whole thing I'm trying to integrate is that's not only not true, it's the opposite. That once you have exponential technology, we we have to learn how to act outside of the way that we've evolved. And but that uh, <laughs> you are programmed on a genetic level to try to get away with as much as you can when it comes to your intimate relationships. And I want to take a moment to feel into um, that it feels overwhelming and that what I would love is you've given me the space to kind of just spew and I can feel that it's not it's not ready and it's fine. I would love to have a direct question from you about whatever is alive and we can just start to get into details and specifics. And it doesn't even have to be about what I just talked about, but I want to open this up and feel what's alive in you. Sure. And I, I just want to acknowledge the, and uh, share my gratitude for you coming here in, in the midst of this and as you said, earnestly working this out. Um, Cause I think one of the real challenges and I spoke about it earlier is uh, there is a, certainly a solitary component about this, but that can only get you so far. It needs to be birthed through voice and in conversation to maybe see it through a different lens. Uh, so hopefully today we can, we can shed some light. Yeah. Again, we ain't getting to the bottom of shit. No. Um, but you know, the one one of the things that came to mind is is there any tension for you? Is there any fear that that the the dream you've had, uh, which is now certainly called into question, that that dream as you're reworking it and getting clear on what that that could be that it doesn't include a family. Has that, has that, have you thought about that? Way to ask a question that cuts absolutely uh, to the center of my heart. Um, I've thought about it just a little bit. And. (sighs) Is it, is it, uh, is and I will just. Yeah, I've got is it, have you thought about it just a little bit? Because as you start down there, it's almost too much to yes. want to go there. Yeah. So since I can remember, um, I could feel that I've wanted to be a father. Uh, a part of my upbringing was my mom had her last child when I was 10 and then my parents got divorced. And so me and my sister, that was one year younger, she was nine. Uh, we began to, babysit our youngest sister and my mom was a single mom. And so she had to work a lot and we would watch my little sister on the weekends and, um, almost every day after school for a couple of hours. And ever since I was, you know, a kid, I've had this part that, um, felt like a father. And then once I 
had my beginning of my awakening when I was like 19, uh, when I started doing psychedelics and I just started seeing like, wow, the life I've been living is not my life. There is a fundamental feeling of tragic beauty to the human condition to me that it feels like no matter what you do, little boy, you can't ever know and everything that you care about will eventually be gone. And my coping with that was to try to live the most beautiful and authentic life as I could. And for me, an intrinsic part of that was um, to share it with my children. And as I've gone deeper into the psychedelic work, and as I've gone through the uh, trials and healing of being authentic in romantic relationships, when things get really hard and I feel like I have, like it just feels like there's no way that I can get through this. One of my go-tos is anything that I learn here, I can teach to my children. And so it's been one of my fundamental guiding lights through the hardest experiences of my life. And there's a fundamental wound in me from my childhood where I did not get the type of father that I yearned for. And he did his best, but I did not get the type of father that I yearned for. And that my alchemy of that wound is I commit to being the type of man that will be able to be the type of father that I felt my little boy deserved. And that, that is one of the primary motivations for me to live my life as impeccably and as honest and as genuine and as authentic as I can and as I do sometimes. And to feel that, so my intuition is that integrating this will not mean that I can't have children, but that um, that would be, you know, like if for some reason I find out that I'm infertile or whatever, like that would be one of the hardest things that I uh, could go through. And this actually gets to a really concrete point that I think is um, perfect for this podcast. We have evolved in such a way where one of the primary things that regulates our nervous system is essentially to have a map, is to essentially have a map of what we think the world is. We have this intuitive belief of the type of world we would like to make it. And then we have a hypothesis of different behaviors that we can take to transform what the world is now into what the world could be. That's essentially, we all have an idea of what the present moment is. We all have an idea of the type of future we would like to try to make this present moment into. And we have a set of behaviors that we believe will help us do that. And that your nervous system has evolved to require this map to experience most positive emotions and that you've evolved the negative emotions to essentially teach you when the behaviors to transform the now into the future aren't working. So a really basic example of this is that if you feel in your body that you have to go to the bathroom, 
you have a map of what your world is right now. And then you feel that the type of world that you want to turn it into is one where you've pissed. And then you have a set of automatic behaviors that you go through to do that. And to the degree that your behaviors help you achieve the type of world that you wanted to turn the present moment into, you feel positive emotion. This is how our cognitive architecture is created to regulate our emotions. And it spans all the way up to what's the dream that you have for your life. And then you have all these hypotheses of the things that you will do to manifest that dream. An existential crisis is essentially you encounter some obstacle between the world you're in and the world you want it to be that the truth of that obstacle is so destabilizing that it changes your story of where you are and where you could go and what behaviors you would take to get there. And so a classic example is if you're happily married for 10 years and you come home and you find a note that your partner has been cheating on you for four years and that they're divorcing you and that they've moved out. In that moment, you've had an entire conception of what your life is. And, you know, if I, if you just do this for six more years, you can retire and then you can go, you know, live on the beach, but you've just hit an obstacle, a, a truth that is so destabilizing. You don't know who you are anymore because you're not a husband anymore. You don't know who you've been for the last 10 years because you're not in the relationship that you thought you, that you were in. Your future is now gone temporarily because you don't even know who you are now. And you go through an existential crisis where you have to essentially rebuild a new map for where you are, a new map for where you're trying to go, and a whole new set of behaviors to get you there. Because when something, like one of the things to feel into is you're this squishy little meat blob that's embedded in infinity. You literally will never acquire the cognitive potential or apparatus to create a model of reality that is not wrong. You are incapable of creating a model of reality that has no errors in it. And so the process of your life is going to be you encounter places where your map doesn't fit reality and you have to deal with that. And we've evolved to deal with that in such a way where we seek to minimize the unlearning as much as we can because a true unlearning leaves you incredibly unadaptive to the tasks that your genes care about. And so we've developed all sorts of coping behaviors to not have to deal with the errors of our maps. And the reason I feel so overwhelmed is because I realized that my map was an order of magnitude smaller 
than what my soul is asking for it to be. Mm. And that to understand the larger map that I'm being called to understand is chain. Like I don't have a dream right now. Like I can feel that the type of life that I'm seeking to create, I can't see right now because I'm realizing that a lot of the motivations for having it contribute to a spirit that if not revolutionized will lead to a massive dying. And what I mean by that is there are aspects of how I live my life and the type of life that I want to live that feed the spirit of game A. And what it feels like I'm understanding that I'm trying to slowly sit with every day is that spirit, if not healed, <laughs> leads to the end of humanity. And I recognize that um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel like if I don't figure this out, the world is fucked. But if I figure this out, I can save the world. That That's not how I feel. That's what just came to mind. I'm like, right. are you carrying that weight? Okay. No. The weight that I feel like I'm carrying is it feels like my soul, which I feel I have a intimate conscious relationship with at least a little bit more than the average person. But it feels like I know how to listen and I know what it's asking of me is that my soul is telling me you're meant to understand this story and to tell this story and you are capable, but I can feel that this is on some level, my professional life has been whenever my soul says, go eat that I go fucking eat it. And I've been able to, you know, me eating what my soul points me to is me integrating a new model basically mm -hmm. a new map and um, the most difficult one I've ever had to try to absorb was Jordan Peterson's book maps of meaning. And I spent like a dedicated 45 days on that where it was just like my function in life is to do the bare minimum to optimize my biology, to be able to sit with this book and this notebook for the most amount of time per day. And, you know, it took me like 45 days to like really digest Fuck. and this might happen once every couple of years. Like when I was 19 and 20 and 21, it was my entire life for a long time. And I almost lost all my friendships. I, my, my life got really dysregulated. The weight I'm carrying is it feels like this is the most important map that I've ever been exposed to. It is, by far the most complicated and the hardest one that I've ever had to try to understand. And yet I can feel in the depths of my intuition, this is a map I'm meant to understand. This is a map that I have the capability to understand at least well enough where I can fucking talk about it coherently where I'm not there yet. And that this map ultimately is fundamentally necessary for me to step back into what my dream has been, which is to try to create the most healing and beautiful psychotherapy for the next generation. 
and it's kicking my ass, Kyle. Well, you know, uh, clearly it is. And uh, the one thing that comes to mind for me, um, and I do want to get back to the uh, having children thing. So I want to present you with a kind of a different idea around that. But um, before I do, you know, I, I, I'm getting the sense and it, and I could be, could be off on this, but is there a certain striving going on to figure out the, the map in the sense that there's a time component here? And in that time component, there's extra pressure that, okay, this is the new map I'm meant to figure out. So I've, I'm going to go, you know, in, in the past when I've, my soul's told me to eat this, I eat it when I, I can't quite figure out the map right now. And I really want to, and it's there. And I'm really, you know, is there a striving in that? And, and then the flip side of that, or maybe alongside of that is what if you're in a season right now where there is no dream, there is no future to uh, use as a North star. And can you just sit, would it be worthwhile to just sit in the true present moment of, of what you're experiencing and see what comes through um, without the kind of added pressure to kind of sort out this map? That's a beautiful question. To the first question, I can feel that yes and no. The no is I don't feel a pressure like I have to understand this map as soon as possible or else bad things happen. It really feels like this thing that I'm being called to is a multi-generational project and that I'm a part of like the first generation that's even becoming aware that it's a problem. And that I don't naively believe that it's something that can be fixed in a generation and that it's going to be a multi-generational thing. But it's not a time pressure, but it's that um, I have never been pointed to something where I couldn't digest it in one insane bout. Gotcha. And that what I'm feeling is that this is a order of magnitude, the larger meal that I am actively being forced into the wisdom of your second question, which is that I've intuitively have felt that how unbalanced I have felt in the last week is actually a sign of my nervous system essentially saying, um, you're going to have to do some, you're going to have to fundamentally change your strategy of map eating in a way that you've never had to before. And that it's perfect for you. So one of the other things that has come very alive for me in the last six weeks as I've started to get into this is that um, the fundamental spirit of the more beautiful world my heart knows is possible or what they would call game B will not be taught to me by books. It will be taught to me by being in felt relationship with nature for extended periods of time and that essentially all the research I've been doing for the last six weeks is to try to understand the problem not the solution and that it feels like what I'm being called to do for what will likely be years is really intense bouts of eating 
and then long extensions of simply being in nature. And, you know, this is the harmony of the masculine and the feminine. You could think of it as um, the evolutionary biology and the game theory and the cultural systems. That's game A. That's the sick father. And game B is the mother. It's this feminine spirit that's trying to come forward. And so I do feel that I'm being called to a part in my life, like right now, actually, to step back and be in the tension of not having a dream. Mm, I love this. And it's, I'm just connecting to this right now, man, but my superpower the last 10 years was my earnest devotion to my dream. Yes. Yes. And that, um, I'm feeling the pain of not being able to rely on that superpower. This, yeah. Well said. Um, this, and you know what's on the other side of this. It's just incredible. Like, again, that aperture, which for you is already pretty fucking wide, is about to expand in exponentially in ways that you can't imagine yeah. right now, that I can't imagine right now. And it's really challenging to hold that tension of this thing, this way of being, um, has served you so well. And, um, you know, there's the old adage when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And, and I say that not as in you're just a one trick pony, but this, this ability you have to sort shit out isn't the thing right now. And that that's gotta be really hard to sit with. You know, on a different level, I, I, I had a call with someone today who's a medium. And um, for those of you who don't know what a medium is, it's a fancy term for a psychic. But she's dialed the fuck in. And what she shared with me, for me right now, I'm actually in this season where my decisiveness, yes, no, is... Um, is, you know, because my, uh, my kind of logical brain power, my intellectual capacity is, is pretty strong. And so I can sort things out and, and make a decision. She's like, you're in a season where you don't know why it's a no. And it's really hard for you because you love to give people reasons why. Mm-hmm. That's comforting, right? This no because of this. And, uh, you're in a season where you're called to expand that. You're called to listen to that intuition that you have that is super strong. My inner knowing, really strong. It's what made me a great trader. It's just, I knew. I didn't always get it right, but I had this, this thing that was guiding me that wasn't in my head. You're going to have to, me, I'm going to have to... Uh, disappoint some people because I'm not going to have an answer yeah. for the why. And uh, 
when I, when I really sit with that, it's kind of what we were talking about prior to getting on. Like that's my call to step into this and not worry about disappointing people because I'm listening to me, a vibe check on what feels right with really zero explanation because she, as she, she pointed out, your explanations aren't available to you because they're based on past experiences of why this, there's no past in this. This is just you mm. at a soul level fucking knowing and trusting that. And on the other side of that, for me, is really connecting to myself and really connecting to that inner knowing and not worrying about, I mean, there's been times when I've said yes to things where there was, I, I just didn't know why. And so ah, I, I just didn't have a good reason why no. So it was sure. Yes. I'll invest in this or I'll do that. But that's not going to work anymore. But the, the, the more you do it, the more you just trust yourself, it's just going to, you're going to really connect to that. So well, that's what comes up for me when I hear where you're at right now. What this brings up is the, so six weeks ago, the thing that started all of this was I read a book called The Journey into Soul Initiation by Bill Plotkin. And Bill Plotkin is what's called an eco-psychologist, which is a branch of psychology that believes essentially the more you can get people out in nature, the more healing that will do. And everything else that we do in Western culture is like, we're missing the point. That's a really simplified way to say it. But he has this model of human development that is so different than every classical model of Western psychological development that I've ever read. And it completely resonated with me. So most standard models of development that Western psychologists have come up with, uh, the stages of development depend on how old you are. His model depends on what psychological tasks you've accomplished as a psyche. And every Western model is a line. It's, it's, it's a fucking line graph. And it's like, at this age, this thing happens. At this age, this thing happens. His is a wheel. And it's based off of the Native American uh, Edison wheel. And it has eight stages. There's two stages for childhood, two stages for adolescence, two stages for adulthood, and then two stages for elderhood. And that you can stay at a stage as long as is required until you complete the task. And the thing that he talks about is that uh, we have almost no adults or elders in our culture at all. And that most of the people in power, most of the people who are parents, most of the people who are making any of the decisions for how things play out, that they're still stuck in the first stage of adolescence. And that the goal of the first stage of adolescence is to essentially find your authentic place in the tribe that you care about. And what that looks like is whatever your goals were or whatever your dreams are that you had when you were like a teenager, like your highest aspirations for your life, you have to go achieve that or encounter enough. No, like you basically have to go find your authentic place in the world. And that 
most people think that that's the goal of life because that's where most people are stuck at. And that to the degree that your culture is out of alignment with nature is the degree to which accomplishing stage three is going to bring you out of alignment with nature. And we live in a culture that is dominated by adolescence. And so to find your right place in this culture is inherently like out of alignment. And that it's only once you've achieved that where you go through what we call the midlife crisis. Hmm. I love this because this is, this, that's where I'm at right now. I've I achieved all that I, I thought I wanted to achieve when I was a kid, you know, in, in, in my forties here. And then finally woke up and said, well, this fucking, that's not it. Right. And so once you achieve that, you enter into the second stage of adolescence, which is the fourth stage on the eight stage circle, which is you start to go into the cocoon. You begin to realize that all of your ego aspirations, they aren't actually the thing. And that you begin to actually come out of the cultural group that you found your place in so that you can then go through the initiation into what he calls soul. And so he defines soul as soul is not a spiritual phenomenon. Soul is an ecological phenomenon. Soul is the part of you, you are, you've grown out of nature. You are nature. Your biology and your essence is nature. And every being other than the ones that have to deal with the weight of self-awareness and choice, they're naturally in harmonious equilibrium with nature. Which is everybody but humans. Exactly. So you gotcha. can look outside and every rock, every blade of grass, every insect, they naturally know how to be in their dharma. Mm. And that humans, we don't even get the opportunity to begin to really live that until you've achieved the ego illusion. And that the... So what he talks about is most people, when they learn about his model, like the catalyzing force from going from adolescent to adulthood is this um, descent into soul. And that most people think that they've already gone through it whenever they get his model or read his book. Um, and the metaphor that he uses is in the same way a caterpillar goes through multiple moltings, which is it gets too big for its scale or for its skin and it has to break out and becomes a new fatter caterpillar. A caterpillar that's only gone through moltings thinks that it's molting was it becoming a butterfly. But that when a caterpillar becomes fat enough, something in it knows it's ready to become a butterfly. And so it triggers a process. And the process leads the caterpillar to create the thing that's going to kill it, which is its cocoon. And then it goes inside and the cocoon literally dissolves the caterpillar into a liquid. And it's from the liquid that it comes together and then creates a butterfly. While I was reading his book, I was thinking in my mind, like, wow, I'm so lucky. I went through my 
initiation into soul when I was like 19. And I had that really hard bout for a couple of years where I lost all my friends. And then I got new friends because I realized how to be authentic. But there was a part of me as I was reading that, that in the back of my mind was like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. None of those were my going from a, from adolescence to adulthood. All of those were moltings. And there was this part of me that could feel like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm entering into that transitional space between adolescence and adulthood. And it was like a week and a half after finishing that book, I, uh, went to dinner with a beautiful woman, was able to buy food off the menu without having to look at the price. And I was driving home in my fancy Tesla and the sun was setting. And I had this moment where I realized, wow, the dream life that I imagined when I was 21 and working at Chipotle and hustling in the Barnes and Noble library was literally to have an online business that sold courses where I made enough money, where I could live however I wanted to. I would be in Austin. I would have a Tesla. I would uh, have a fit body that would help me be able to date beautiful women. And I realized when I got home that day, I was like, oh, my soul is about to tear my life apart. Like there was a part of me that could feel like I had achieved the adolescent goal, which I'm, I'm in that dream right now. And so (laughs) one of the reasons why this is, uh, such a hard time for me is that I have enough spiritual intuition to be like, fuck, I'm, I'm beginning the process of entering into the hardest bout of my life that I know I am called to do, that I know is going to help me become a genuine adult and that I know I'm going to say yes and that I have no idea how hard it's going to be. And how Plotkins defines a true adult, which is still only stage five out of eight, but a true adult is someone who has had one or more revelatory experiences of meeting their soul, has learned a craft that allows them to express their soul into the world, and they've gotten good enough at that craft where the expression of their soul through it heals the people that they're close to. That's a genuine adult. And if you feel into that description, that to us seems like, a superhero. That seems like a Gandhi or an MLK or a Jesus or a Buddha. And if you actually feel into for a moment, that's what a healthy culture would produce in mid-20s. And the fundamental part of the transition between the adolescence and adulthood is you have to dissolve your ego in the same way that the cocoon dissolves the caterpillar. And it's weird, man. I can actively feel that I have the awareness to know that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, that I am lost, that I can't see my future, that I can't connect to a dream, 
and that I know that this is the right path and that I know it's going to get harder and that there's going to be more dissolving. And just like the caterpillar, the caterpillar has no idea what that butterfly feels like. Right. You don't have, con- you don't have context for it. Yeah. Which, you know, obviously on the one hand is a bit terrifying because it's, as you said, destabilizing every, you know, those superpowers, you know, they, uh, your soul has handed you some kryptonite. It's like, it's not working. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's, yeah. I, I love that you're here in the, in the, in the midst of this, this is the perfect podcast. This is literally the podcast for me to be sharing. Cause what's interesting is every podcast that I'm on, you know, I'm, my energy is mostly like, I know what the fuck is going on and hmm. I'm giving advice. Hmm. Uh, this podcast is essentially me vomiting little fragments of a puzzle I'm trying to put together and essentially explaining like, Hey, I'm lost. Yeah. And that's, that's the advice. That's the, that's the, you know, really, I would say that's a, a great way to put it. And for me that this podcast is not about experts in traditional advice. It's about having people on to share whatever is on their heart, whatever they're working through as, as a means to open that up for others. Say, Hey, look, yeah. Someone, this guy who's fucking brilliant and he's, he's checked all these boxes. Look at what he's sitting with. Look at how he's holding the tension and not running from it. Yeah. Like what better advice, what better, you know, what better to share with people yeah. than to see what this process literally feels like. And this actually feels like this brings us back to what I was talking about with your son. And it's that, one of the ideas that's built into this game A, game B model is what's essentially called um, epistemic humility. So, uh, epi- like, that's essentially a philosophical way of saying um, be humble in what you think you know. And when you genuinely and earnestly begin to feel into, and this is what created my psychological crisis when I was like 20 or 19 was once you, <laughs> you may have just put him one at 15. So let's get it. Let's roll. Yeah. <laughs> that once you begin to non protectively feel into how do you know what you believe, you know, it will fucking demolish you because one of the things to feel into mm-hmm. is, right. I love this. Okay. Um, I want people to really tune into this part. Right. So I'm trying to feel into where to even begin. Um, let's take, for example, uh, that you believe that you're currently listening to two people talk about what's on their heart. Um, you know what? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to not try to be poetic and just talk about what I talked about <laughs> with son because I can feel that it's not the way. Okay. I appreciate okay. the awareness on that. So um, his son was bringing up how he, 
he can feel um, what is the manipulative forces behind the Black Lives Movement and that he tries to have conversations with people and he tries to explain what he means by all lives matter and that I could feel the genuineness and then I could feel this is a great opportunity for me to share what I've been working with and that one of the things that begins with this game B epistemic humility is beginning to understand how if you're not paying attention uh, you are likely being hijacked by forces who are operating under game A who benefit from you being emotional and afraid and confused. And there's a bunch of ways that they go about trying to do that. And we can get into that as this starts to unfold. But the first thing that I offered him was in the same way that you can see that there are manipulative forces behind that movement that are genuinely or that capture genuinely good people who are trying to express something sacred. And then they devolve into this tribalistic type of thinking and operating in the, in the same way that that's true on that side, on your side, there are manipulative forces that you don't see that are benefiting from your genuine expression of a sacred truth that is causing you to act tribally. And that one of the ways that we've evolved to function inside of tribes is to be able to see this other group as the enemy, which allows us to project all the things about the human condition that we find unsavory onto the enemy. And then we get to hold all the things about the human condition that we love on our side. And that this has been how tribes have led to war for thousands of years that you are contributing to that energy. If when you are communicating with someone who doesn't agree with you, you can feel that your nervous system is agitated or afraid. And so you're using words to defend yourself and that you can feel that their nervous system is elevated and that they're using words to defend themselves but anything that anyone has ever said to you that they believe deeply, how many of them have read the foundational scientific literature concerning whatever it is that they believe? I know for me and for you, it's 0.01%. And how many of those people have read the foundational scientific literature of the papers that directly oppose what they believe. It's an even smaller number. How many people have looked to see who the researchers were that did the study and who they were funded by and what the economic motives of the company or the government that funded the study are attached to? And then how many of those people understand how the market forces in our global situation right now have been uh, hijacked by hyper large companies that are now larger than governments that are able to use and pay armies of lobbyists to get governments to change laws in such a way that favor that company 
playing a game A dynamic to maximize the amount of money that it makes and that it funds these studies. That's just one example of the task before us of trying to understand the chessboard, which is the most complicated and complex it's ever been in recorded human history. And that it fundamentally cannot be done by a single human mind. It's too complex. And that if we don't get it right, the players on the board are strong enough to end the entire game. You begin to connect to the weight of any conversation that you have where you are lying about how certain you actually are. And the reason this is so fucking destabilizing is that the type of rigor that feels like it's being invited in me to bring to how I communicate about things feels so like challenging that I almost don't know how to talk to people about things that matter because no one I know right now that's close to me has the time or the will to do the hours and hours and hours of conversing and researching it would take to even begin to try to create a humble model of what is happening in the world. And that like one of the things that's heavy to feel into is it is a function of privilege to even be in a situation where you could begin to try to understand the chessboard that like the average person has to work eight to 10 hours a day doing something they don't like. They're stuck in a financial situation that stresses them out every day. They likely don't know how to eat in a way that isn't increasing inflammation and decreasing their cognitive capacity. They don't know how to sleep right. So they're constantly accumulating more stress. They have unprocessed trauma. So there there's even more like to even be in the position that I am, I know as a reflection of my privilege and my luck and that there's, it just feels so incredibly heavy and heavy's, the wrong word. It just feels like I can't grasp anything yet. And I can feel that voice again that was going on earlier. Like you're not even close. Like I can feel that I'm not making meaningful sense for the people listening. Maybe that's my inner critic, but it feels like, um, I bring up that example to try to represent how destabilizing um, this epistemic humility creates, but that it feels like this epistemic humility is what's required for us to even begin to solve the problem that we're in. And it's like, um, most people I know get almost all of their uh, information about what's going on in the world from social media. Um, probably about 10% of the people that I know will do more rigorous research than that, but about 90% or more 
all their information comes from social media. Social media, specifically YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and Twitter, are ran by algorithms that are seeking to optimize the amount of time that you spend on site because they sell your attention to advertisers. The computers that are running these algorithms are orders of magnitude more powerful than Deep Blue, which is the chess computer that we created to play, I forget his name, but the- Is it Kasparov? Yes. Um, that computer beat Kasparov at chess. Kasparov was the greatest chess player in the world, had trained his entire life to play chess, knew he was playing chess against this computer, and lost. This, these computers now are competing for how you see the world. And they're orders of, magn- orders of magnitude more powerful than that computer. You haven't trained your entire life to be good at making sense of the world. You don't know that you're competing against this computer to make sense of the world. And everyone is getting their ass kicked. And that what these algorithms have found is that for most people, you maximize their attention on site by triggering their limbic brain. So you make them angry or afraid. And so everything that you click on on social media, everything that you reshare, it's not malicious. It's just the raw computational power of what these algorithms are optimizing for. They are going to show you things that are going to trigger your limbic brain. And so if you're someone who is aligned with Black Lives Matter and the algorithm can see that from what you're liking and reposting, you are likely going to be shown the most disturbing, extreme examples of a unprovoked white cop murdering an innocent black person. And that's going that's being optimized to be shown to you. And if you're someone who clicks and reposts and likes things that represent all lives matter, you are likely going to be shown videos of the most extreme cases of black rioters doing the most rare extreme cases of either what seems like pointless um, destruction of property or attacking a white person. And you are being shown these things by this algorithm and it's increasing your certainty that the way that you see the world is absolutely right. And that we are, we are the most fractured that we've been um, from a meaning standpoint in our country and that we are also at the point in history where it is the most potent time to try to figure out what is actually going on and how can we make it better? Because fundamentally, man, everyone on this planet wants to feel safe, wants to feel connected, and wants to feel like they're meaningfully moving towards a more beautiful world. Mm. All of us want that. And we are at a point in our cultural evolution where in order to do that, we can't fight team A versus team B anymore. And that's how we've competed and tried to survive 
our entire evolutionary history. There might be some examples in civilizations past, but this is the first time where if we even want a more beautiful world, our hearts know it's possible. We have to fundamentally change the way that we disagree. We have to change the way that we defend what we believe. We have to learn how to unlearn. And we have to do the hard work of sitting with the humility that we know almost nothing. And the more we are certain, it is very likely a reflection of how afraid we are of that thing being wrong. Well, I think that's a great point right there. That last statement, the more certain we are, it's just a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a reflection on, uh, yeah, like creating safety, calming the nervous system and making sense of this world, which when we really strip away all this stuff, it doesn't really make any sense. Not in the way that we've been taught, not to the way that it's portrayed. Yeah. Um, which makes it hard for people to listen to people that challenge, you know, quote unquote, the conspiracy theories. It's hard because there's, there's so much cognitive dissonance. It's so hard to hold that these things could actually have some truth to them. Right. That, um, there's probably nothing more destabilizing for people to have to sit in that, that this way that they've seen an institution, the government, doctors, fill in anything is called into question. What does that mean about my belief system? Because yep. your belief system in, influenced what your dream life is. And your dream life is what stabilizes you. And if your belief systems start to crumble, you might have to change your dreams. And really the, the, the changing, the collapsing, I would argue, of the belief system is the, there's the real freedom if you can hold that. Yeah, if you can alchemize and make a more accurate model. Yeah, and you know, I think our, our, one of the challenges we have as, as humans is this looking towards the future, this predictive nature that we have, which yeah. I don't think anyone's ever right about the future 100%. 100%. And I think once we can sit in that, it goes back to what you said. We don't know shit. We really don't. What we know on some level is our direct experience. And even that right. is, is clouded in. We talked about that on right. the men's group. Right. It, it's, 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 it's our view, what was happening with us, our central, like all these things. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot to chew on there. Yeah. I can feel that there's something coming through that feels like it might actually be uh, poignant and something that is of value to the audience. Cause there's a part of me that feels like a lot of this podcast has been the audience almost holding space for me kind of making chaos, but it feels like I have something that uh, I would like to offer. And it's that what if the spirit of the world that is currently, or the spirit of the culture that's currently eating the world, what if, Every time that you behave in its spirit, you add to its strength and you 
add to the energy to the system that's destroying the earth and that there's a spirit of this way of relating with other people, which is fundamentally what culture is that could heal the earth. And that every time that you act in that spirit, you contribute to that culture being born and that, Whenever you interact with another human in the spirit of they're my opponent, I have to beat them, you feed the spirit of game A. And that whenever you interact with another person under the spirit of this is fundamentally my brother or my sister who is trying to make sense who is trying to row the boat with me and that it's not about beating. It's about genuinely coming to a better understanding of how to row the boat because if we get it wrong, we die. That every conversation you have feeds one of those two spirits. I invite you to feel into a couple of things. One is every belief that you have about the nature of the chessboard that you believe is absolutely true. I invite you to humbly write out what those beliefs are and ask yourself, why do I believe that's true? And feel into how many facts deep is that conviction? And then if you still feel like you hold it as a conviction, I invite you to look at the sources of information or the sources that you get your information from. And I invite you to um, purposefully seek out the leading authority who believes the absolute opposite of what you believe is absolutely true and make that a regular digestion of the information that you take in. And then if you find yourself in conversations with people where you are either exaggerating what you believe to be true or you're regurgitating something that you know you didn't go look at the direct evidence for, but that it's either a headline or a snippet of a Instagram video, that you at least be honest in the conversation when you do that. And that it's okay to say that you don't know. And the last part is to create space in your weekly calendar to connect with at least one person where the focus of it is to talk about something that you guys do not agree on with the intention of trying to learn more about what the other person believes that might be true. And it's, it's interesting because the podcast that I did with you, Cal, um, the first time, the thing that I shared with you that had the biggest impact on you, that also had the biggest impact on the audience was when I described this idea of when I'm talking to someone who has an extreme political belief I imagine that they're a child that's doodling a drawing and they're showing me the drawing and they're screaming that this is what the world is. And that 
fundamentally what I try to do is I want to know how did you draw that picture? Why did you choose the colors that you drew? What did, what is it that you think that you're explaining with this drawing? And then I genuinely try to understand like what, it, what is it that they're trying to say? And what is it that they're afraid of that they're trying to hide from or that they're trying to explain away? And the thing that I have found with every interaction that I've had with someone where they're trying to share an extreme about anything about politics or about the world that they think they're certain about and that they're emotionally bound to is that they're so used to being met with people who either already agree or are trying to attack their belief that they're on guard. And that the moment I begin to simply ask genuine curiosity based questions, like how do you, where did you go to find that? And why do you think that that means this? Oh, what paper was that from? And the, they start to relax instantly. And it feels like the type of conversations that I see when it comes to politics or about trying to understand the world, you know, or conspiracy theories is... <sighs> People are regurgitating headlines or they're regurgitating, you know, like a 30 second clip of a YouTube video, but they're doing it in such a way where they're seeking to teach other people. And I'm, I can feel almost paralyzed in the last couple of weeks whenever I feel someone beginning to teach someone else about like, oh, um, the world is falling apart in this way or the evil cabal is doing this in this way, or capitalism is exploiting this in this way, that it's like we're infecting each other with super low resolution information that is just contributing to the confusion of game A. But as you guys can tell by the way that I've been talking on this podcast, <laughs> I can feel that I don't understand game B communication dynamics well enough to even begin to teach it. And so I'm in this fucking struggle bus and that this is now like the fourth time on this podcast where <laughs> I can feel that there's a part of me that's like not close. Well, if I, I think if, if, if I can offer a little assistance, what I'm, what I'm hearing, if I could one Oh one game B for the listeners, I think if we start with genuine curiosity, uh, that's a place that most people don't sit. Right. So if we can start there, uh, and I think if we can relax into the idea that there's not a right and wrong, there's not a, a, a truth and a non-truth, there's, there's a, a blending of all of it within everything. I know that for me, one of the most freeing things I experienced was when I had the 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 aha moment. Oh, I, 
I, I don't know shit. I make a ton of assumptions. And it was in context to my wife. And it was based around she's upset. Okay, I could, I could, I could see that she was upset. Okay, so that was objectively saying like she, she, you know, I could read her emotion. But I made assumptions that it was because of me, because of one thing I had done in particular. But what I, when I really, when I really sat with it, I started to understand like, oh, that may have contributed to it. That may have been the thing that really triggered her not holding that emotion down anymore. But there are so many other things throughout her life, including past traumas, that helped get her to that point. And when I started to recognize that, I started to make, started to see all the assumptions I was making, you know, with her, but in particular in life in general. And, and we had talked about this, I think on the previous podcast that the, 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 the brain is about conserving energy. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's like, so to make these assumptions, it makes us easier to live life, move through and um, not get stuck in the not knowing. And so you have to be able to hold both of those things. Wow. Like we don't know, we don't know. It doesn't mean we're dumbasses. It means that let go of the certainty if you have a direct experience, that helps. But if we can just let go of the notion again that we there's a right and a wrong and we have to be right. Yeah. And if we're right, we're good. And all that comes with that, I think that's that's kind of my invitation to everyone. And it's it's my invitation to myself to go back into that space because it's easy to fall into those that old paradigm of, you know, if I'm right, I'm good. Right. I'm better than you. I can feel that you just helped me relax into uh, clearly what is my medicine right now, which is um, there is a force inside of you that knows when you are being truthful. It doesn't mean that what you're saying is the truth. It means that you are, that you are genuinely to the best of your ability speaking and acting in such a way that is in accordance with how you see reality and that your nervous system can feel when you are being authentic and a part of being authentic feels like this existential moment at some point in your life where you realize I actually don't know. I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't know why COVID happened the way that it happened I don't understand this, the geopolitical forces behind it. I don't understand vaccines. I don't understand why this person across from me is acting the way that they're acting. And still, hmm. I feel called to be in the world. I feel called to try to make a more beautiful world. I feel called to try to help the people that I care about. And that the reason why... I believe these things is because it feels like I'm genuinely protecting something that I love, whatever it is. And that I think that this thing is um, an enemy to the thing that I love and that I'm afraid and that I know that I'm going to die and that I can feel that I'm lost and I can feel that I could be better here and here and here and here. And that one of the most potent lines of 
any book I've ever read is from Boyd Vardy. And it's, mm. I don't know where we're going, but I know how we're going to get there. Mm. And it feels like I am in the deepest not knowing where I'm going that I've had since I was 19. But I have so much more inner resource than I did back then. And that I can honestly say, but I know how I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there by doing my absolute fucking best to tell the truth to myself, which is I'm lost. I'm overwhelmed. I'm out of balance. I need to be in nature and relax. So it's being honest with myself. It's being honest with the people around me. Um, I had the opportunity to really share some of my deepest shit with a group of men just a couple of days ago. And then it's to earnestly and genuinely try to create more of the world that my soul is asking me to create. And that I think what I was trying to convey for an hour and 40 minutes is <laughs> you have evolved to bypass that whisper of the soul to make yourself feel safe by confirmation bias, tribalism, competing, acquiring resources, trying to beat other people, trying to impress other people. And that I feel called to try to help people um, relax into the humility of not knowing. And then from that place of humility, begin to listen to the one authentic source of information that is yours. And it's that whisper inside of you. And that, that whisper can only be polluted if you lie. And that when you act certain, when the truth is you don't know, you're lying. Absolutely. That's it. That's beautiful. Uh, Just took an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, get, no, yeah. well said. We knew we'd get there. We'd land on something, but there's a lot, there's a lot in that right there. And it is, it's difficult to hold, but, but again, from, from my own experience and what you're talking about too, is when you're speaking the truth, whether it's the absolute truth or not, it's your truth. You know what that feels like. You feel expanded. You feel open. Your body actually opens up. And when you're not, there's some constriction. You're, for me, my mouth changes a little bit. There's a tension there. Yeah. And you may think you're doing it for the greater good, but, but it's, you know, it's kind of what I was saying about my call this morning. There's that whisper inside you. That's not logical. And we've been conditioned to not believe it. We've been conditioned as kids because all those things, those whispers, we acted out and we got in trouble for. And we were told that that's not how you act. And unfortunately, it starts at a very young age. And, you know, there's this whole indoctrination in the school system where you're just, you're tucked taught to act a certain way. You're taught to, you know, learn other people's experiences, alleged experiences. And, and that's how you learn, unfortunately, 
within the school system. Uh, and yeah, the it, school system is actually modeled after factories and is meant to feed factories. And so that's why we have the bells. That's why um, we have been indoctrinated in our education system to uh, listen to authority, to repeat what authority tells us. And the interesting thing is that it's inherently threatening to the dying system for you to listen to your soul and act in truthfulness because it, it will bring you to live a life that actually takes energy away from the old system. And the old system is trying to protect itself. You know, and Boyd, I'm glad you brought him up earlier. Uh, he's shared on the podcast and, you know, in our conversations that the system expects revolution. The system does not expect abandonment. And, and that's where the real shift wow. could happen because wow. it's back to so what we were talking is, about prior to the, the getting on here is this, this us versus them fighting the system. We got to win. And even when I had David Martin on here, Dr. David Martin, he talked about that idea. They want you to play that game because it distracts you from you from the real the real way this to is change is to actually infiltrate the system and to use your term destabilize it. Right, and then it takes care of itself. So there's uh, there's a bunch of really interesting threads here. Um, the first one is meanwhile, my wife Peyton just flew out today to go to South Africa to spend time with Boyd and his mm. sister on the reserve and my niece, Lindsay and their friend Maureen. And I just make sure I give them a shout out too, but love. Yeah. And thank you for contributing to the psyche. That is Cal, all of you. Um, uh-huh. so one of the things that's really tough about this game, a game B thing that I've tried to explain to some of my closest friends is. Because the world is in a situation where the game A big players are so strong that they are actively racing every day to create um, AI-based weapons because the first one that gets that is going to have a huge power advantage over the other players. Uh, They also have the nukes and that if they continue to play the game that they are playing, if you abandon the system, the system is still churning at an insane speed that leads to the end of life on this planet, most likely, but not certainly. And that a lot of people I know who are the most kind and the most conscious and the most invested in making a more beautiful world, most of their dreams involve abandoning the system getting a beautiful piece of land somewhere with either them or their homies and living their lives that way to, to, and the thing that I'm feeling into is it seems to be from what I am seeing, if I choose that route, my grandchildren won't have grandchildren. And that's a stark way to put it, but that that's at least the directionality of it. So that's one point that I've been in. The other one is this fascinating point, which is, The system expects revolution. This is so interesting. One of the things that I've been mulling over is almost all revolutions begin in the spirit of game B. They see that there's something fundamentally sick and broken with how we are going and that it needs to change. 
And what tends to happen in the course of almost all revolutions is either they begin to adopt the tactics of game A to compete with game A. And so if they win, they've actually just brought more energy into game A and they eventually become some version of the thing that they were trying to revolutionize. And the, and the, 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 the main players of game A are calling them in. Right. So, yes. Right. And so game B essentially gets eaten by game A or the other one is they play so untactfully in the game A that they are eliminated early or they're eliminated um, clearly because they became effective enough to, to scare the system. Because one of the things to understand about the system is they have the tanks and they have the bombs. Like one of these ideas about like cryptocurrency being the thing that's going to bring down the economic system as we understand it. One of the things I heard just the other day is if that happens, who has the tanks and who have the nukes? They win. Like if whatever your version of how to make the world a more beautiful place involves accelerating the destruction of game a, it eventually will lead to, okay, if everything collapse, do the assholes have the bombs? And they do. And so what these, what these group of philosophers are imagining, like it's tough that they don't have a book where I can read everything. I have to basically listen to hundreds of hours of podcasts and I'm creating this huge mind map that is part of the reasons why I'm so confused. But one of the things <laughs> that they were talking about is what they imagine is essentially coming up with the protocols of how to relate and to communicate with people in the spirit of game B, where you go create a community somewhere, you basically create a mini civilization somewhere that begins to function so much more optimally because it's in this healthier spirit that it will start to generate innovations that game A also needs. And so the example would be if a community of like 150 or 500 or whatever the amount is, and they genuinely come up with a way to turn pollution in the ocean into energy, they could outsource that or sell it, quote unquote, to game A. They could give it away to game A. And if they continue to create these type of innovations and they give it to game A, they're actively increasing the likelihood that we don't self-extinct by the function of the innovation, but they're also going to begin to get the powerful people in game a who are genuinely good people, almost all of them. And they're going to be like, what the fuck is that group of people over there doing? How are they coming up with this type of stuff? And then they will come ask how game B is doing it. And then the transfer of how game B is doing it, would be the thing that would actually start to get more and more of game A to change to game B. The metaphor that they use that really resonates is a cancer cell is the perfect example for how game A operates. A cancer cell, its ability to communicate with other cells breaks down for whatever reason to the point where now it believes it is an independent agent 
in this soup of things it must compete with. And so it maximizes its own consumption for its own growth because it thinks it's alone and it eventually kills the host. A human or our culture is made up of these type of agents that our ability to relate to the fact that we are all on spaceship earth and that we are actively competing with each other to eat this thing faster is how a cancer cell operates. But a healthy cell operates in such a way where it fundamentally understands that it's working in communion with millions of other things just like it to assist this thing that's greater than it. And what's, what's really potent here is that when healthy cells communicate in a large enough number, they create what science calls emergence. And emergence is the idea that a new phenomena arises from a collection of parts that none of the individual parts have that phenomena. So an example would be there's a bunch of shit that makes up a cell and none of those things breathe, but a cell breathes. You get enough cells together and they're able to function as tissue, but none of the individual cells are tissue. You get enough tissue to act together, you get organs. You get enough organs to act together, you get self-aware conscious beings. Something happens when when enough pieces of consciousnesses that are able to communicate when they communicate in a coherent way it spontaneously gives rise to a fundamental higher order of intelligence and the idea of this game b is that what could be produced by an actual example of humanity because what they talk about is The idea of humanity is an experiment that we've never actually done yet. Because what would come out of 8 billion people that actually related to each other under the understanding that they are one organism, that they are all interdependent on each other, that they're assisting each other, and that they're all in this as one body what would that produce? We don't know. We've never seen it. And that's why they believe or they have the hope that if you can even get like a town to operate in this type of coherent way where everyone truly believes we all share the same body, what would come out of that? And that they believe that like genuine innovation and insight and invention and creation that could help us write the ship. And so the revolutionary act that seems to work in their model, which could be all completely wrong, is that you revolutionize the system by healing the system. You heal the system by healing yourself and then getting together in a group that heals. And then the natural emergence of that healing is going to begin to heal the system. But if you abandon it, the organism dies. 
If you revolt against it, you get consumed by the thing that if it's not healed, will destroy the organism. I'm going to come back to my original thought about you as a father. What if, because after this, I actually want to shift to something we talked about this weekend. I'd love to get there. Um, so a little non sequitur back to the, the, the original piece. What if you as a father wasn't in the biological sense? And I'm not talking about adoption. I'm talking about your children are the ones that you are sharing all these lessons with. And it doesn't, again, look like the traditional sense. Like I have my three kids, but what if, like, how would that feel? Would you be, would you be open to that as as a possibility from where I'm at right now, it feels like if somehow my soul revealed to my ego that I would never have biological children, I think I would turn into a poet and I would not be a philosopher. I would not be a psychologist. I would just write poetry from the core of my pain. Mm -hmm. It feels like there. It feels like there is a opportunity for the most unique and loving relationship that you get with the human that you choose to make children with and then those children. And it feels like, like the question I ask at the end of my podcast is always, let's say that you've achieved everything that you wanted to achieve. And you know that you're now old and that at the end of that day in your sleep, you'll die peacefully. What would you do that day? Every single fucking person's answer is I would be around the people that I loved. It's not, I would be around all the people that I helped through my art. It's not, I would be around all the people who came and listened to me talk. It's the people that I've loved. And I can feel that there is a fundamental type of love and people can get spiritual all, all day. But my, at least my perspective on human nature is it feels like there is a specific type that can only be experienced in the union that creates new life and then the relationship with that new life. And I would, I would have a beautiful crack down the center of my heart that I would speak poetry from for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. If that was a type of love that I wouldn't get to experience. Mm, I think that's fair. Yeah. Thank you. And that might bring us to the question. Yeah. So what's, you know, I'd love for you to share in any way that you feel called, um, what's been speaking of relationships, yeah. what's, what's been coming up for you and, and how you're kind of in process with that. So a part of the feeling of the unraveling of my life right now is it feels like the relationship that I have been uh, twisting my mind to try to figure out how to make work for the last exactly year and six months to the day of this recording. Wow. Yeah. It is ending today, actually. Um, and... I can feel that a big part of uh, what is giving me the 
inner resources to make a really hard decision that I know the little boy in me would never make if he wasn't being forced to was really feeling into the weight of what it feels like my life is being called to, the type of other that it would take for me to be able to live that life um, requires more honesty about what I need than my little boy who wants to be redeemed by the woman, you know, the archetypical woman. And that it feels almost like a part of the death of the dream for the life that I had revolved around a uh, naive expectation of the type of relationship that would create the family that I dream of. And that this like spiritual commitment to game B on some level is requiring me to make decisions that I have justified not making for the last year and a half. And that it feels hilarious from a soul perspective that my professional life is being completely dissolved. And the, like the dream for the type of woman that I've always wanted um, is now being dissolved too because it's such a deeper point and it's so personal and I'm going to do it anyways, is that uh, whatever unhealed wound that you have with your parent or your primary caretaker of the gender that you're attracted to, you will play out that dynamic with the people that you love, with the intimate partners that you have. And uh, your model of the type of woman that is your ideal woman is, I'll just speak for me, but I think that this is human nature, is molded by my mom. And I can feel that the type of relationship that has been molded by my relationship with my mom is the type of relationship that requires me to um, self-transgress myself to support the other person and that it's not a mutual holding, it's a rescuing. And that if I'm going to be the type of, if I'm going to live the type of life that I'm being called to live, it's going to require an incredible amount from me. And if I'm in a relationship where the majority of my energy is being put into rescuing and not co-growing and healing with each other, I am self-transgressing my dreams. And that the just the potent beauty of it is that the woman that I've been in a relationship with sees this too. And we both are in love with each other and we both know that uh, it's not right. And that we both have not had the strength to make the integral 
or the choice and integrity and that we've had to unconsciously put ourselves in situations that have hurt each other enough where we are now forced to make the choice that's actually good for us. And that it feels like there's a, I can feel that there is a poetry happening in my life that my thinking rational mind cannot comprehend, but that my heart can feel. And uh, there's this simultaneous, like, I'm so lost and I can feel this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Mm. Was there anything specifically that gave you that moment of clarity or like when, when did you, when did the resolve kind of appear for you where you're like, this is the time this is, I, I, yeah, there's no other way. So it's, it's intricate and it is um, personal in a way where to honor her, I, there's a lot that I won't share, but the core of it that I do feel comfortable sharing is um, I got to the point in my personal development where I had the strength to articulate a clear boundary and I could feel that the articulation of the boundary was received in a way that was fundamentally healing for me. And I'll actually share the details of this. There's one of the things that I've learned is I've never allowed a woman to truly hold space for me in an intimate relationship where I really allowed myself to be vulnerable, to not be a king, to like admit the like ugliest and most insecure parts of me. Uh, because I didn't feel that that was safe to do as a child. And there was a moment um, four days ago where I was able to finally do that. And I was received impeccably in a way that was truly healing to something old in me. And um, the boundary that was received from me being vulnerable was then transgressed by them 24 hours later in a way that felt godly and authentic, but also so potently poignant that it felt like my soul there's a big part of my life that's intuition and I've intuitively have felt in this dance with this partner that, um, whenever there was hardship, there, there was always this intuitive feeling of not yet, like keep, keep dancing. And there have been times when it's been incredibly hard. Um, when I received her truth, about what had happened, which is like, it was so incredibly healing to know that she knew that the sharing of the truth would mean the end of the relationship and that she still had the integrity to do that, which that moment has now made her a lifetime soul ally because of the integrity and the courage it took to do that. But in the moment that I received that, 
truth I could just feel for the first time in my intuitive body and you're done. And, um, yeah, it feels like a part of the dissolution process is to also, uh, I've, I have now been in the, uh, dream relationship that I was able to imagine as a young teenager, like truly the most beautiful woman that I could possibly imagine the poetic depth that I yearn for and the moments of bliss and presence that is in our team. Like I got my relationship dream and now I'm realizing, uh, how that needs to transform. I got my career dreams and now I'm seeing how that needs to be transformed. And I can feel the poetry of it. I feel, um, well, thanks for sharing so vulnerably and um, candidly. I love how you presented that uh, in particular see if I've got this right, but that these boundaries, boundaries have been crossed in the past and um, kind of let it go. And in, in this moment uh, where 24 hours prior was a beautiful healing moment, almost to say like, oh, now this is real. Now I see I'm opening up, I'm growing. There's some, some, there's a, again, this major healing going on, which we all need. This boundary is transgressed and the soul's like, now what are you going to do? You got everything you thought you wanted. Now what are you going to do? The feeling is not, now what are you going to do? The feeling is, Done. And done in the way, like, it's it's so interesting to feel into, but um, <sighs> things have unfolded in such a way where it feels like something, it, it feels like the thing that has been sought to be healed by the romantic aspect of this relationship to this other soul was received on, on Friday night. And then, uh, like, the only behavior that could be done that would finally get me to let go was exactly the behavior that unfolded and unfolded in such a, like, human-to-human respectful way. Like, she had the courage to truly, like, share her authentic felt sense of this experience and that um, there feels like there's no like ill will towards them and that I can feel that the complete absence of ill will is because there is no longer the part of me that says keep trying and that what I feel is that we did this dance in such a beautiful way that she will be a soul ally for the rest of my life 
but that the relationship learning has feel, it feels like it has completed. And there's two things that uh, feel important to articulate. And I can choose to ignore my soul and go suffer more until I realize that the lessons have been learned. And also, and this is super intricate, and I don't know if it will make sense for a lot of people, but maybe it will, is that um, it feels like one of my coping behaviors is to use my big fucking brain to try to imagine how things will be in five years and act like I know. And that um, part of how I pretend to know to protect myself is like, I know that this is done forever. And that I can feel that when I claim that I'm not being in truth and it actually starts to make me not feel in integrity in my body. But that also, in order for me to genuinely honor the ending of this, I have to move forward as if this is done, period, forever. And so there's this interesting tension where it's, if I pretend like I know, that there's no hope for us ever having a romantic relationship in the future and being inauthentic. But that if I proceed in the world, hoping that there is something that will happen between us in the future, I cannot call in what feels like the type of relationship that is awaiting me on the other side of my deepening into my unlearning. And so there's this really intricate, the old coping pattern would be to pretend like I know that nothing can ever happen there romantically again. And then there's this part of me that knows if you hold on to any hope, you are still stuck in the pattern that your soul is now telling you that you're ready to graduate from. That is a lot to hold. You are in fucking full cocoon mode right now. Good God. I think that's an amazing place to finish. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Thank you guys for bearing with me with what feels like my most incoherent podcast that I've ever recorded. Well, I'm honored to have been the, the host of that, my brother. Thank you. Brother, thank you. Thanks for sharing this and uh, doing this dance with me today. <laughs> thank you. It's been way too long. Love, Love you, brother. You, You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. <laughs>